welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is STEM Learning in Pre-K through 12 Education. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Jacob Foster, who founded STEM Learning Design to support innovative program design and powerful student learning experiences. He partners with districts and organizations to redesign school programming and learning space design, with a particular focus on STEM education. Prior to starting his company, Jake was a STEM leader for the Massachusetts Department of Education, where he engaged in educational policy, STEM programming, curriculum development, professional development, school support, and strategies for systemic change. Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast. Jake, thank you so much for finding time to talk to us today about STEM learning relevant to K-12 through levels. Um, maybe before getting into the conversation, if it's possible if you could start by sharing with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work interests that I know include teaching science in high school, working in the Massachusetts Department of Education, and founding your company, STEM Learning Design, if you could just take us through um, the steps. Sure. Uh, Thank you for having me, Natasha and Nicole. This is great. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation with you. So um, I uh, started my career in uh, science education, um, and I attribute a lot of my foundations to prior teachers. So uh, way back in high school, I, I went to a very small school that um, I had one science teacher for three years. And, and luckily, he was uh, very responsive to what we wanted as students. And so I left high school thinking that I was going to be like a particle physicist and, and uh, go into study string theory and quantum mechanics and whatnot. And uh, in college, I you know ultimately decided not to do that and instead um, uh, you know found another teacher who engaged me in geology. And so went from particles that live for millions of a second to phenomena that are millions of years. And then as I started my own teaching, uh, I started as a high school teacher, really uh, starting to become aware of how unique that was to have uh, teachers that uh, were engaging students in in practical ways, taking them out in the field and, and really responding to what their interests were. And so finding in my teaching that it took a long while for my students to get in that mindset. You know, I could take, you know, up to half a school year uh, before they felt comfortable posing their own questions and their own ideas and and really sharing and and trying to think about what it took to make that a regular thing. And so, you know, it really kind of drove my career as I left teaching and went to become a teacher educator and a curriculum developer and ultimately on to um, uh, the state level uh, policy position, really helping others to think about student engagement, student relevance, uh, and what it takes to get them to be the leaders of learning rather than the teacher being the leader of the learning. And so uh, you know, my work now really is around working with K-12 uh, programs, uh, particularly with a focus on STEM education, so thinking about program planning and strategic planning, uh, and more recently uh, getting into uh, learning space design. I've always had a theme of uh, in, across my uh, career of, of loving to build things, and so you know, having been in, in construction and doing woodworking and over the pandemic learning electronics, 
that that kind of relationship of practice and space is uh, taking up a, a new emphasis for me. And, and what does it mean for students to own space rather than teachers to own space? And what is it? What kind of uh, features of the space enable the kind of pedagogy and the kind of student learning uh, that ultimately uh, we're looking for? Thanks, Jake. So on this topic of space, I know when you have full control over the learning environment you're trying to create, then as an instructor or K through 12 teacher, you can make some of these decisions. But in your experience, how does the topic of space come up in a typical, if I could say a typical engineering classroom? So uh, to your point, you know, many teachers do not have all that much control over space, right? They inherit a space that already has furniture, that's already got cabinets in place, that has, you know, technology that's usually fixed to the wall. And so a lot of what teachers can control is somewhat the arrangement of that space, if the furniture has some flexibility, and uh, the materials they bring into the space around, you know, the activities and whatnot. And so uh, recently there's been some especially in, in regards to engineering and technology, there have, there have been some trends that are becoming more and more uh, prevalent in schools, particularly around things like maker spaces, or sometimes they're called da Vinci spaces, mm -hmm. right? These, these shared spaces uh, where by design, they are meant to be more flexible. They're meant to be a little bit more interdisciplinary. And they're meant to uh, to engage students in different contexts or di around different projects. So I think some ways that schools and teachers have been addressing that issue of making the space their own is to create new spaces. And then the other theme really is to redesign their current space so that it is more flexible, uh, trying to clear out the floor space and putting in furniture that they can move on a quick basis. Um, so that even students can rearrange it if they go into a small group, uh, they they can rearrange themselves and to have a variety of seating options and a variety of uh, workspaces and, and work surfaces that can be flexible with the activity they're engaged in. You know, I also would like to come back to the idea of active learning and student engagement. And I think maybe generally talk about what does it mean to have students actively engage? I think that's my first question. And another thing to follow on that is how do we envision active type of learning if we look at the elementary, middle and high school? Because mm. probably this have differences to them. Sure. So in terms of active engagement, what it looks like in a classroom is you know students doing the work basically ideally students are posing questions that are of interest to them that are relevant to the learning that needs to take place and to their community and to issues that matter to them uh, so it is a it is a facilitation balance between the teacher and the student right the the teacher has responsibility to to ensure that students uh, hold a certain knowledge and develop a certain set of skills. But to do that with the flexibility of responding to the teachers is a, a, a skill that a teacher has to develop. And so the ability for students to shape what they're learning 
then gives meaning to what they actually do in the classroom. Like, what are the activities? What are the laboratories? What are the kind of field experiences? Who are the people we need to make connections to in order to better understand a real life context or how to interpret uh, some some data that you know we either collected or found somewhere? And so, you know, being able to engage with the phenomena, analyze that phenomena, uh, collect data around that phenomena, uh, and all in service of a question that matters uh, is is really, to my view, what student engagement ideally looks like. And there's various shades of that, right? You can talk about uh, a laboratory-based, you know, almost teacher-designed, uh, guided inquiry, and then open-ended inquiry, almost a spectrum of, of, of freedom from the perspective of students in that regard. There's been some interesting resources, particularly with the uh, release of the Next Generation Science Standards, NGSS, and their adoption or adaptation by many states across the country uh, towards, you know, a real emphasis on phenomena, uh, a real emphasis on um, representation and modeling. Uh, the inclusion of, of engineering design as part of science has been an interesting uh, shift uh, given NGSS. And then uh, kind of a storyline approach to curriculum development, which is driven more by, you know, essential questions or driving questions and a storyline of, of a progression of a story through a unit rather than a content focus. So along the lines of this conversation of interactive engagement, I think about what it takes for the teacher instructor to prime the students to actively engage. The fact that the students themselves have their own set of motivation, interests, beliefs, whatever terms you want to use here. What are some ways you've seen in your work that instructors, teachers have been successful in engaging students? Because, you know, some already come to the learning space ready to engage. They have really big personalities and they're socialized in a certain way. But we also have to think about the student who would rather sit in the corner by themselves. Like, so what are ways that one can prime students to want to be engaged in such a setting? Very good question. That has multiple responses or multiple components to it, one of which is how do you address those students who have varied um, preferences and or uh, learning styles, if you will, uh, you know, every, all of us have the ability to engage in, in multiple ways, but often we have our, our preferences for how we want to do that. And so student choice is an important characteristic of teaching in this way. So within an activity, are there options for students to focus what they're learning on or how they are approaching the, the problem or the, or the question or the assignment? And so sometimes just having an opportunity for example, to work within a group, to work independently, or to work as a pair is enough of a choice. Sometimes it's a matter of you know, giving them a choice on what topic within the frame, the unit, or the problem that you're framing uh, that's enough. And sometimes leaving the methodology for them to design is a way to give them choice and, and ownership of that. I think a second component to what you're asking about, Nicole, is really kind of the student agency part. How do you give them permission to engage in a way that is relevant to them? How do you give them permission to bring their 
context and their culture and their experiences to the learning, especially in a subject like science or math, where it's often viewed as, you know, a static discipline um, where, you know, the answers are already there and you're there to learn the laws and theories. Um, and so how do you honor what students are bringing uh, to that? And that takes some time, but fundamentally, uh, you've got to be explicit about uh, those contributions that students bring and uh, make use of them in your class. And so, for example, I used to do a thing at the beginning of each year with my students um, and just I'll just take a ninth grade class, for example. Um, I used to do a little demonstration with a, uh, an old milk, you know, glass milk jug or milk bottle and a hard boiled egg. And, and you could uh, put a put a little piece of burning paper in the jug and put the egg on the top and it would kind of pull the egg in. And we'd have this whole discussion about what what was the phenomena there? What was acting on that egg in order to pull it? You know, otherwise the hard boiled egg, you couldn't have just pushed it in yourself. You would have smushed it. Um, so, you know, what actually pulled that egg into the or pushed that egg into the bottle? And that discussion, right, I would never say what was going on, right? But by encouraging them to share and share their observations, share their their thinking, we got five or six different ideas on the table. And I did not an- did not say which one was the right answer, right? And and as using that as the first experience to say that's the kind of interaction I want. It's not whether or not you're right or wrong. It's how you're engaging in that exploration and, and conversation that sets the tone for later on. And so I would have to do a lot of that kind of modeling and that kind of feedback to uh, students to say and to set the tone that, you know, it's not a right or wrong uh, response here. I know many of you think science is right or wrong, but let's let's get into the exploration and your thinking and that dialogue uh, that goes along with it. And interestingly enough, I, I developed a second strategy that I I found uh, uh, to be pretty useful. Many students, you know, would ask me, "All right, how do I approach you know whatever problem it is or whatever task you've assigned me?" And I would say, "Well, that's really up to you on how do you want to approach that." And they would ask many different kind of questions uh, to to try to get me to tell them how to approach the work. And ultimately, I developed a strategy where I would say yes while shaking my head no. And that actually takes some practice to do or vice versa. Shake your head no while you say yes. And it just kind of puts the student in a different mentality to say, wait, he's answering me, but he's not answering me. So how do I address that? And then I'd walk away and and let them kind of figure it out. So basically, I had to give them permission to struggle and permission to them to take ownership for their learning. It's funny you say that because to my undergrad and my grad students, I tell them it depends is a really valid answer. And so they'll say, how do you such and such? It depends. And that's my response. Yeah, that's great. That's another <laughs> way to put them in that mode. Jake, and I'm just interested in in a younger group of students, say elementary school. How do you start kind of encouraging young kids to share their ideas, to kind of get this different mode of instruction because I think frequently there is this idea that elementary school is more about discipline and I know it's maybe not a very popular idea but I think you know it it happens in schools. (laughs) so how do you provide opportunities for younger kids to start practicing um, these approaches so interestingly um, I actually see it the other way around young children 
are often much more inquisitive than older children. In a sense, we almost we almost train students out of asking questions about the world as they go through the through the years. There was a research review done by the National Academies on science in early years, in the early grades. And one of their points was, you know, kids are naturally inquisitive, right? They're trying to figure out the world and they're they're trying to understand how and why things work. And we should be building on that, right? We should be taking advantage of that. And young children, especially in the early early grades, uh, do ask you know those kind of questions, right? They're not embarrassed to ask why is the sky blue or you know why does why does it turn get dark at night? And um, to bring those into the classroom in a in a way that you know makes sense for the curriculum you're working on uh, is a little bit of a task because many elementary teachers are not necessarily trained in the sciences or engineering, um, and so uh, it it could be uh, hard sometimes for for adults to see the potential in those questions. Um, but but really that's that's the heart of where you want to start, I believe, is in those questions, in those, you know, student wonderings and and the student play, right? As they play with phenomena, as they play with natural objects and designed objects, right? How do they how do they think about and interact with each other around those? And so there is there is quite a bit of work going on right now around uh, the value of play in the early years and making an explicit connection between that play and uh, STEM learning. So I guess maybe to follow up quickly on this question, because like you said, sometimes elementary school teachers are not necessarily tra- trained or equipped some of the knowledge to help students ask these questions or think through some of the questions. So what should the teacher prep programs, especially for elementary levels, focus on? And especially with things changing so much and STEM education showing up in elementary schools more strongly. Teacher preparation is a big challenge, right? Many teachers go into education because they felt successful in the current system uh, or they um, they felt that it's something that they know and can, in a sense, replicate. And part of what the challenge is in, in STEM education is to change that sh- change that mode from science as a discipline, right, as a body of knowledge uh, to science as a way to investigate or engineering as a set of you know rules and calculations you make to engineering as a thought process, a design process. And so uh, many teacher preparation programs, uh, particularly for elementary uh, school teachers, uh, have pretty minimal expectations uh, or requirements for uh, science and engineering. And so uh, there are a number of programs that do like a science methods course with with elementary teachers uh, that that can help. And, you know, obviously, if there's a opportunity to engage in uh, teaching science as part of their teacher um, placement, teacher prep placement, uh, they they, uh, can can engage in those kind of things. But fundamentally, I think the best way to deal with that, because teacher preparation time is so limited, the best way I think to do that is really through professional development and over time, providing teachers with the opportunity to engage in authentic inquiry and design experiences uh, is the way to go. So, for example, two organizations that I'm involved with, uh, one is the Wade Institute, uh, which is a science education 
organization here in Massachusetts with a focus on inquiry-based and place-based education, right? So getting educators into the field with experts who work in that field. Um, and, you know, that could be in, in a, a variety of different locations. Um, but it really gives them a sense of what it means to ask questions in a real context. How do you engage in exploring that context? And, you know, kind of what's the mindset of, of folks who work in those fields? And so, you know, I think one of the even at the secondary level, once a teacher graduates from college, it's pretty rare where they see the professional side of science and engineering and how things are changing over time and what kind of authentic questions are being asked in that in that context or what are the methodologies that are being developed. And so that kind of internship, externship, place based work uh, really can go a long way. A second organization I'm involved with is uh, Beyond Benign which is a green chemistry education organization. And they're really trying to work with schools and uh, at, at K-12 and higher education uh, to think about the activities that you engage students with, particularly as it applies to chemical-based activities. And how do you pick up on uh, themes that students very much are into, so like conservation and sustainability and whatnot, and how do you work those themes into curriculum, into your own material and chemical choices uh, so that you can engage students in thinking about the life cycle of products, for example, and how do you make that greener? How do you think about sustainability? How do you use less dangerous chemicals in your activities and labs uh, so that you're not impacting the environment as much or your own health, right? So you can put it in a health context. And it's that kind of experience, teacher prep programs don't have the time or the or the expertise necessarily to engage in that level of depth, but professional development in those kind of experiences uh, over time certainly can give teacher teachers a pretty well-rounded and experiential view of, of what that could look like. I think one other one other point that I think is interesting uh, comparing elementary and high school uh, teachers, when you ask those teachers, what do they teach? Many elementary teachers will say, oh, I teach kids, I teach students. Whereas you ask a, a high school or a, a professor, a college professor, what do you teach? Oh, I teach math or I teach science. I teach a discipline, right? And I think those two perspectives can inform each other, right? If you are teaching a discipline, you are teaching kids how to think and the knowledge and concepts related to that discipline. But we always have to keep in mind, it's the kids that are taking that up, right? How do we get them to a point where uh, that makes sense to them and, and it has meaning to them? That's a very interesting point you raised about how different people will talk about what they do in different ways. I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Well, it's along the same lines. At what point is it through these the professional development opportunities, do these teachers then get exposed to ways in which they can use technology to engage their students um, or to help their students engage with the world? I believe so, yes. Technology is one of those areas that's constantly changing, right? So um, teacher preparation programs are only one moment in time early in a teacher's career. And while many preparation programs do focus on the use of technology, that changes so fast that you do need to engage in that professional development over time. Clearly, with the pandemic, teachers kind of um, ramped that up significantly, 
particularly as it relates to digital technologies to engage students or uh, to engage in work, uh, classroom-based work on, you know, through technologies. But there's also been a pretty significant increase in technology-based STEM resources, and that can uh, be a wide variety of resources, such as um, citizen science efforts, where the technology enables both the collection and um, uh, access of large data sets that are compiled by multiple people across multiple uh, sites and over time, right? So it's, it's the ability to access that data um, engage in data collection on in your own site and contribute to that data set. And then technologies that help you to analyze and visualize that data or, or the phenomena. And so there's, there's a number of organizations such as the Concord Consortium that does a lot with technology as it relates to modeling and representation. There are others that are uh, doing a lot with visualization um, I worked for a, a time at WGBH, for example, and we had a grant from NASA to to build out um, media-based curriculum resources. Uh, so we were we were pulling media, digital media that was produced by the federal science agencies, and many of those were representations of different natural phenomena, particularly large-scale phenomena that you couldn't otherwise see, you know, in your local neighborhood, for example. Um, it might be like ocean currents, you know, the, uh, across the world or um, uh, something to do with volcanoes and, and uh, tectonic plates. Different, different representations of those kind of phenomena in media, in different kind of media formats that teachers could bring into their curriculum. And some of those were interactive via technology and some of them were just, uh, you know, different multimedia formats that they could, they could engage students with. Um, but that is an example of how the use of technology and the use of, of media can really enhance uh, what's going on. And then there's been some effort around um, remote lab labs where a large scale or pretty unique equipment is made available via technology and the web uh, where students can you know, ask a question, set up a little experiment relevant that is relevant to that equipment. And then, you know, basically send the instructions off, you know, to wherever the equipment is. So, for example, there there might be telescopes in Arizona that can take images of something in space you're interested in. And so you can tell them, here's what I'm interested in. Here's, you know, um, what what the basic instructions are for the equipment. You send it off, and and after however long uh, the it takes to run that, the uh, provider, whoever's kind of servicing that equipment. You know, basically sends you the the results back, or you know, you're able to manipulate it yourself over the web, even though you may be in Massachusetts and the equipment's in Arizona. And so, there's a lot of interesting applications uh, in in STEM uh, for different types of technologies, but all of which change over time, and all of which take time for a teacher to become aware of and to find out how to effectively incorporate that into their curriculum. Taken to follow on this line of thought. So for teachers, they need to become aware and they need to kind of continue their learning, be open to that and be engaged with the professional development. And to be honest, I'm not really sure how that works, for example, for um, a 
public school, say in Massachusetts or any other state, usually the type of the awareness that comes about, you know, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, wonderful different opportunities for professional development in the STEM area. How do the teachers become aware of this? Is that sometimes depends on an individual because, you know, I think many of us know the star teachers who try different things and get engaged and bring things into their classroom. Or is it something that typically comes from the administration that you're really advising the teachers to be current with certain trends in your experience? It's a very good question and not an easy question to answer. The traditional approach to teacher professional development has been uh, relatively dispersed. In other words, each teacher typically used to kind of choose what they needed uh, or what they felt would, would impact their curriculum. In the past decade or so, that has shifted some. Uh, more schools are valuing kind of um, whole faculty or department kind of um, group level professional development where they want their teachers working together on a professional development, either that that, te that teacher team identifies or that the school identifies. And that way, uh, they, they're aiming for mo more cohesion and, and more consistency across their teachers. And much of that now um, can even be curriculum focused rather than um, disciplinary in nature. And so that shift has um, led teachers to uh, be more uh, focused on what the school is doing rather than what uh, the field is doing around them. Now, that said, there are still opportunities in both modes. And to your point, the, there are many organizations that offer professional development. It's a, it's a component and a requirement of most federal science uh, grants, for example, to do some sort of outreach. And much of that outreach is um, education focused and teacher focused. And so there are many opportunities out there. Those opportunities, there is no good central location to find out about those. It's you, you either need to know where to look or you hear it through a, you know, a newsletter or a website or your informal network of, of friends and colleagues. Um, and so that that effort is still exists and, and is still rich, but it is still varied and, and dispersed. The school focused work um, tends to be tends to be a little bit more cohesive because, you know, that's out of out of the individual teacher's control. And so it tends to be more around the the curriculum you're working on and or the the projects or uh, strategic initiatives of the district. If I could just quickly add to this question, too, because, Jake, some, you know, someone with your experience of working in the school and working in the Department of Education and now running your own business, in your experience and in your opinion, at this time where we are and things are changing quickly, a lot of new developments in STEM, what do you think would be the most effective way to get from innovations, to get from new cool ideas to the classroom? Very good question, Natasha. And I might take Nicole's strategy of it depends. <laughs> um, there are different professional needs in terms of where a teacher is in their professional trajectory and pathway. Um, that said, to, to try to respond to your question, I think um, what I would put as, as the ideal, if you will, is a combination of, you know, out of school experience where you see the 
science, the engineering, the thinking processes that these disciplines engage in in real context, right? So place-based, profession-based, you know, those kind of internship kind of opportunities or in in a space with an expert to kind of see what it looks like in action. That gives you the, the reason for why the discipline is important and the relevance for why the the content matters uh, to kids and to our society and whatnot. But then teachers typically need some support for making effective use of that back in their classroom. And so I would ideally say that there is some sort of mentorship or coaching or some sort of support that is provided in their classroom or in the school context that helps them to enact what they've seen and learned and experienced outside the classroom with kids and what that means for their curriculum, what that means for the activities they engage kids in, and what that means for how they frame it for kids or with kids uh, so that so that they can apply and make that connection between the world outside of school and their task and, and responsibilities in school. So you've done quite a few, quite a bit of work at the state level, um, as you indicated in your background. And I just wonder, um, what have you seen other things done, you know, in different states that are helpful or things done as it relates to teacher preparation and setting the stage for active engagement? Um, or is there a particular program that you worked really closely with that you think would be helpful in a different context? Yeah, so looking across states is pretty interesting because each state has its own view on how much the educational system should be centralized or dispersed. And in other words, Massachusetts, as an example, is one of the most quote unquote, local control states. In other words, we give significant authority to individual districts about what they do with their students, what they have for graduation expectations, what curriculum they choose, uh, what the teacher professional development needs are, uh, who they hire for what roles. Uh, Many of those things are the responsibility for those things are housed at the district level. Other states are more centralized. You know, they have a approved curriculum list that the district has to choose from, or they have a a professional development program that is more centralized and and determined at the state level. There's always some local flexibility in there, but those things are more centralized as a resource for districts. And then there's other states that are organized more around kind of county or regional uh, resource centers uh, where, you know, there there may not be a statewide effort, but there is a regional effort to coordinate some of those resources and services. And so, you know, there's pros and cons to each approach. Here in Massachusetts, um, I, I sit on a local school board in my own town, and, you know, the decisions we have to make um, about curriculum, for example, even even at the district level, the elected school board really does not tell the school what to put in for curriculum. We we articulate the outcomes we want for our students, and then it's up to the 
the staff and administration to to identify what curriculum uh, is going to get them there, is going to get the students there. And so it, it really is an, uh, a matter of where you want the responsibility. Do, do you want the responsibility at the local level or should more of that responsibility be shared among you know, the broader community of, of a county or a state? And so there are a number of interesting programs out there or resources out there from those states that have more centralized systems because they've had to pull together those resources. And so, um, you know, you'll find some, for example, professional development programming um, that are run statewide. So there may be a statewide coaching program where individual schools may not be able to afford a content coach or a you know, elementary coach, science coach or something like that. But yet at the state level or at the regional level, um, that's viable. And so those those coaches can go from one school to another. And that you know gives them an opportunity to share what's going on, you know, across across schools and, and aim for a little more coherence and consistency at, at a broader level. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, I also kind of throughout our, our conversation was thinking about a, sort of the effect of technology on learning and this idea about what we're experiencing right now, you know, especially sort of shifting from the online teaching as a result of pandemic to back to in person. But there's also a sea change, integration of technology in the teaching and learning is there to stay. And also modalities of teaching should not necessarily be shifted to back to face to face and considered as ideal for students, you know, whether they're in K through 12 or the undergraduate students or even in the workplace. And I guess my question to you, and, and that relates to the space, I think, and the use of technology for active learning. Um, what is your perspective on the trends of shifting towards a hybrid type of education in K through 12 system? Is that something that maybe you see some examples of, or, you know, maybe that's not something that where the educational system is moving towards? I don't know what's, what you're thinking about it. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, right? With the, with the major disruption, uh, you know, at the pandemic level, you know, what have we learned from that process and, and what, what could potentially carry forward? And I was personally really hoping that the pandemic would drive a lot of that reflection and, and innovation, if you will. I think in reality, what happened in many places is that, you know, that change was forced upon the system so quickly that um, it really was done without substantive planning or preparation uh, f- to be done well. And so a lot of a lot of school systems have uh basically reacted against what they put into place and and really kind of said, all right, that didn't work. Uh, you know, it just emphasizes the value for returning just strictly to face-to-face. That said, there were many things that were tried and a number of uh, organizations that felt that what they learned is uh, is valuable. And many of the technologies that were either developed or put into place in the educational context um, you know, got a test run and many of them worked, right? They were able to keep kids engaged even when they weren't in the building. And so 
there are definitely schools that are and districts that are picking those up. Uh, here in Massachusetts, for example, we have a small number of districts that are maintaining a online or hybrid option uh, for students who choose to do that. Um, and that is, uh, you know, they've, they've recognized that some kids actually preferred that approach and felt more engaged than being one of 25 in a classroom all day long. And so um, there are definitely some institutions and some technologies that are that are being used there. From a from a STEM perspective, the value of technology, um, you know, remote technology, uh, is pretty Im- impressive, right? As a means to engage with experts and um, communities around the world, particularly if if you are engaged in problem-based learning or um, uh, projects where you're grounded in a community problem and a and a community solution or a community design. That is an effective way to engage with the community, right? If your students are in one location and your community is dispersed, you don't expect students to and teachers to go out to the community in person and do all that work. And so, um, you know, being able to access people, experts, data, you know, phenomena via technology. Those remote tools that we put into place are uh, during the pandemic are just as effective. And so I've seen uh, some schools that um, after the pandemic have set up in their schools a Zoom room, for example. Uh, and, you know, because uh, it it is an effective way to maintain those relationships with others for educational purposes that they found value in and, and want to maintain. I'm also interested if, again, hypothetically, I feel like I have a lot of <laughs> hypothetical questions, but if the school would be more on you need to come when it's really important for you to come and interact with your teacher and with your classmates, what were those opportunities would be in STEM when it's really important to be together face-to-face? And how would that inform the uh, design of a space then? Yeah, so so. You know, STEM is an interesting case, right, because it is so grounded in the materials and the phenomena. If you're talking about design, you know, whatever your whatever your problem is that you're trying to develop solutions for. And that process, both in science and engineering, is um, enhanced through those social interactions where you get different perspectives, different ideas. Uh, you try them out together. You critique them. Uh, you you modify and blend ideas, right? So much of that process ideally should be interactive. Whether or not you need to be in person or remote, my perspective is that doesn't really matter. There are there are definitely moments when you're dealing with physical materials that it's certainly a lot easier to be uh, together. Um, but if you're brainstorming ideas and and testing concepts. Uh, you know, it can be facilitated either direction or either mode. So I, I would I would say that, you know, the much of science, engineering, you know, STEM education uh, in in its in, in the form that it's evolving towards and, and that is called for by current standards really is about the interaction among students and, and others. And so to the extent that they are together then we need to facilitate that. And, and sometimes it's helpful to be in person together. I, I think that a lot of folks found that 
you know, students, there was a, let me reframe that. There was a recent article in a mathematics education journal, and I'll, I'll get you the link, that uh, talked about engaging students in mathematics uh, during the pandemic. And they used this strategy of um, asking students to go find an example in their environment of, for example, congruence, you know, of a, a shape, congruent shapes. And this teacher describes, you know, having had the kind of stereotypical class, you know, in his remote environment. And then when he asked them to, all right, find something in your environment that represents, you know, this type of triangle, obviously there they all are, right? The kids are sharing examples and talking about, oh, does that one really count or not, right? I, I found a coat hanger. I found a, a, a potholder. I found a, this, that, or the other thing in my house or in my, you know, driveway or whatever. And obviously that conversation was about their experience and their environment. It both engaged them, right? They were all there on the screen uh, chatting and it both and it uh, really enhanced the conceptual conversations around what what congruence was. So I think it, a lot of it has to do with how you frame it and and how you um, provide the opportunities for students to contribute. Um, that's really interesting. The, the idea of having the students bring something. I was wondering, um, Jake, as we're thinking about the value of technology or the role of technology, I know it opens up the world of possibilities, right? Um, one can find an applicable solution that exists or an, a same problem existed in a different context and being used in a different way. But I think one thing the pandemic highlighted that some of us never thought about was this idea of access and what assumptions we make about what kinds of access students have. And so now that they're mostly back, I think everybody's back in the classroom, like even as it relates to homework problems, like how can educators be mindful of what students have access to or can access or not? Yeah, access is a it still remains a big challenge. There was a lot of work done during the pandemic to increase access, but there are many communities that still do not have access or populations mm -hmm. within communities that have limited access. Um, so there's the question of access to the technology, and then there is question of access to the content, if you will, the the discipline and the context that you know make make learning relevant. And so definitely there is a lot of work to be done in the technology access. Many schools, particularly over the pandemic, went to a one-to-one -one kind of computer, um, you know, either Chromebooks or laptops of some sort. Um, and so many students now have the devices and those are used in schools and often taken home, um, particularly for older students. That said, the, you know, Chromebooks are great for accessing the Internet, right? They're cloud based, but they also have many limitations in terms of what they can do. So programming around uh, engineering, for example, if you're learning you know, CAD in middle or high school, um, you know, there are some online kind of things you can do. But there are some um, applications and and work that you know, schools engage in that really do require uh, more than a more than a Chromebook. And so those kind of access issues are really dealt with a little bit more on the school level. Um, but 
I think to your point, people's awareness of of that has really uh, increased. And I think it's become uh, something that people are working on more explicitly. You know, complete side note, I went to a, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and one of the presenters was talking about this idea of the Chromebook, but he was talking about it in, rela- in relation to first year engineering courses where they have to run all these software and the Chromebook, while it was more affordable for a lot of people, to your point, it cannot do all the things. I mean, the screen is only this big. And I didn't think of that primarily because I didn't have to. And so it's inter- it's really encouraging that we're having these conversations or he was talking about, oh, we like to say, I prefer to have two or three screens. Well, for the student that all they had was that screen, how are you going to look at multiple tabs? But I am encouraged that we're actually having these conversations now as opposed to assuming because this is my setup, everyone has the same. Yes, and, and interestingly, I think that the prevalence of Chromebooks has pushed a lot of uh, application developers to think about how they can provide online versions of their application. So, for example, you know the the you know 3D printing is a big thing in schools, or any any kind of uh, CAD based uh, design, digital you know driven uh, uh, manufacturing. And there are now more online applications apps that you can design and export a, a STL file from, right? So I think in a way that's driving some some change in the in the access that students have to those applications um, and those are becoming more sophisticated. It is also driving conversations in schools about what they need for technology. So for example, even three years ago, I'd have conversations with schools around um, which computer labs they need to have in their school, right? They they have a graphics design lab, they have a CAD lab, they have a journalism lab, all of which run applications which need you know more than a Chromebook. We need and they'd all want you know a desktop kind of set for their part of the building. And so now the question is a little bit more: okay, rather than dedicate three rooms for three sets of computers that are you know, each run one kind of dedicated set of software. What if we had mobile uh, laptop carts? And by taking the mobile laptop carts from one place to another, you know, you can have the more powerful computer, but you don't have to have three rooms designated uh, just for uh, a computer lab. Very interesting stuff. Jake, and I guess continue with this line of conversation, I also would like to spend a few minutes um, talking about your company, STEM Learning Design, and in particular what it does, and for some of our listeners who might be interested to approach you, what types of problems you would help people with, and uh, what is the process usually is like? Sure. Mm -hmm. So, So my work focuses on kind of two areas. One is on STEM and the kind of program design. So strategic planning, rethinking, you know, pathways through STEM, uh, how do the curriculum within STEM disciplines relate to each other? Uh, so helping to think about the, the larger scale design and implementation of, of STEM or STEAM programming. The other uh, work, set of work that I do is around school redesign. And that I do um, include STEM, but also a uh, whole school. 
and rethinking, uh, helping, helping districts uh, and schools rethink uh, what they are doing in terms of uh, the large scale uh, connections across uh, curriculum and disciplines and what that means then uh, for learning space. So on that side of the work, I, I am basically uh, helping schools think about their their um, uh, whole school program and getting them uh, ready to engage with an architect uh, if they're thinking about redeveloping their building, either remodeling or, or building a new building. And so uh, in both cases, it's really a, a process that in, involves asking, what are you trying to accomplish with your students, right? What are the goals and outcomes that you want for your students? What are you preparing them for? And then thinking backwards, all right, how do we get them there, right? What are the experiences they need to have? What are the course options? What are the pathways that they may take? Um, you know, is, there, is it a fixed thing or is there flexibility within the program that will get those students to those desired outcomes? And whether or not there is a space issue involved, then you know, if there is, then we can start asking how does how does the space currently or how, what changes need to happen in order to better enable you to put that program into place and to engage kids in the experiences you want. And so, for example, I work I've worked with a couple districts um, just focused on their STEM program, uh, either at the middle or high school level kind of rethinking what opportunities uh, they, they have and then how their current structure in their in their physical space allows that. And so a number of schools, for example, want, want to add a STEAM makerspace or a DaVinci space. Um, and many times they'll they'll come to me and say, we know we want this. We don't quite know what to put in it. And, you know, when I ask them, well, all right, what do you want to accomplish? That then starts the conversation, right? And, and sometimes they they have a sense of that, and sometimes they are saying we're starting from scratch. You know, help us think it through. And then then we can start. Okay, once we start articulating those outcomes, then we can start defining what needs to be in the space and what it needs to look like and how it's structured. And that's basically the same conversation that happens uh, prior, to, you know, at the larger school level, uh, as as you think about your overall program. Right. What is it? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, go through that kind of educational visioning process almost um, and think about the outcomes, engage different stakeholders in your community in terms of you know what you're looking for, what you think students are going to need to be prepared for in the future. And then start thinking about, all right, how's the program going to achieve that? And then once the architect arrives, then they start the conversation. What's the space look like uh, to achieve that desired program? All right, Jake. Thank you so much for your time you spent with us today. This was a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure listeners will too. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. I learned a lot, and I just want to say, so we will include any information you will share with us and also link to your company. I'm sorry, but I have one more question that, that I want to ask quickly. And frequently, Nicole and myself ask for practical advice, you know, at the end of our conversation. A couple of things that an instructor can do today to improve what they teach. My question a little bit broader. One or two things that can be done today, maybe this month, at the state level, at the school level, and at the parental level <laughs> to help our kids engage in STEM learning? Not a small little question there, <laughs> uh, but a good question. Very good question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at the at the I'll work I'll work backwards at the at the parental level, and I I, I struggle with this a little bit myself, right? Because uh, you know I've got, I've got a son who's in middle school now, and 
he does not love math and you know it breaks my heart that he doesn't but he doesn't so you know without without making him hate math more how do i engage him right and so it's been it's been a kind of a interplay of being in touch with his teacher so i understand you know what they're working on and i can support him in in strategies really right i'm not i'm not trying to teach my son math i'm trying to help reinforce how he goes about doing math or thinking about math or you know strategies for approaching a problem and uh and you know i think that is different enough from what he's doing in class that it it resonates a little bit with him i've also been watching um there you know there's a ton of interesting kind of videos about mathematics right mathematicians talking about interesting problems or how did the ancient Greeks get their uh, get their aqueducts level? And how do, you know when they had to go through a mountain, how'd they know where it was going to come out the other side? Right. Interesting kind of problems like that, that he's into history. So that connection, uh, you know, really kind of helps bridge the gap, so to speak, uh, between his interest in history and his lack of interest in mathematics. So I think, you know, from a parent perspective, trying to make those connections that the school otherwise might not have the opportunity to do uh, can be particularly valuable. From the uh, school or district level, I think the the more that we can bring in experiential, you know, hands-on, in- inquiry-based, design-based experiences into the curriculum, uh, the better off uh, we are in terms of engaging students and and making it relevant and and interesting for them from the state level and this probably depends on what state you're in you know some states that you know can provide oversight of or have a say in the curriculum i think that's the biggest and kind of quick most effective way you can you can have an impact there but then secondly i would say you know providing the professional development opportunities for teachers uh, to to help them understand you know how they can make science and engineering and mathematics relevant through their work in the classroom, I think is is the best, one of the best things that a state can do. Well, thank thank you. you. This has been an awesome conversation and an opportunity to chat with you both. So I appreciate you reaching out and and, uh, I hope that this is valuable to others who listen. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you.